Hi, I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change the way we think about things. Today, we talk to actor and playwright Wallace Shawn. I saw Long Day's Journey in Tonight when I was 13, and I saw The Iceman Cometh before that when I was 12. Yeah, upsetting theater, you know, it's excited me from an early age. Theater that told the truth about uh, things that were not normally discussed on the surface. Wallace Shawn is a prolific actor and voiceover artist. Since his debut in Woody Allen's 1979 film Manhattan, his name has appeared in well over a hundred credits in film and television. Some cultural touchstones include his work in Clueless, The Princess Bride, Gossip Girl, and as the voice of Rex in the Toy Story series. For many, his face and voice are basically instantly recognizable. But amidst this success within popular culture, Wallace has also cultivated a huge body of work as an Obie Award-winning playwright and essayist. His plays are often experimental, incisive, and challenging looks at class politics, sexual psychology, and morality. In his essays, he further explores assumptions of class and privilege with a profound sense of humanity, most recently in his 2017 book, Night Thoughts. Josh and Wallace are longtime friends and colleagues, and they recently got a chance to talk about this dichotomy between Wallace's life as a writer and his life as a character actor. Hi, Wally. Hello, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how just thrilled I am that you were able to uh, make time in your schedule for this. I know you're heading out to Los Angeles tomorrow to resume work on the mind-blowingly huge hit sitcom Young Sheldon. You started working in film and television at a, a relatively late age. Yes, I was 35. You've managed to be a part of some of the most popular of popular culture on uh, TV and film and voiceover in the last 40 years. Many, many people know you from those appearances, and yet you also have this sort of double life as a writer of plays and essays. And I'd just love to have you talk a little bit about how you straddle those two worlds. Well, you know, who cares, in a way, but the people who've tuned into this show, you know, presumably have some interest in people who work in these different lines of work. So uh, I'll talk about myself, but, uh, you know, it's not important, but, you know, just to add to the list of humans with their different experiences. Yes, it's increasingly strange for me to have two identities and increasingly upsetting uh, because now that I'm working on a TV show in California, I'm physically separated from my old identity as a writer because very few people out there have ever heard of that part of my identity. I have a very complete identity out there as a, a uh, humorous actor. And I don't have any detractors out there. I mean, if I do, they're very polite and don't uh, tell me about their dislike of my acting. Whereas, I, as a writer, I've always had plenty of detractors. But in my head, I'm still that writer uh, who took up acting recently as a kind of bizarre side activity. Uh, so I have the two identities are getting farther and farther apart, and I am more and more confused and upset. <laughs> so, I, I mean, at the moment, I'm in a period where I've realized that uh, my entire life has been based on a completely false expectation, uh, really, 
because my father was an important uh, person, editor of uh, the New Yorker magazine, I was treated with special kid gloves, even among the people who were all being treated with at least semi-kid gloves uh, in their growing up. And I think I took it for granted that uh, I would be a serious person in the world. So I believed that uh, my writing was quite significant and, and that it would be discovered by society. And I took a lot of pleasure in the story of people like Beckett or Harold Pinter, whose early work uh, might not have been respected, but who gradually became universally admired, even worshipped. It's honestly been a shock in the last uh, year or two to realize that it didn't happen to me. Not that, yet. Right. Well, no, I mean, I mean, after my death, I have very high hopes for myself. But, but it, not even as high as they used to be, though, because I, I, uh, I think, I don't know, as I got into my 60s, I think I might have thought, well, it's going to be great after my death— you know, in my 70s, I'll be recognized at least, and then after my death, it'll really be a celebratory situation. Now, obviously, I don't really believe that the value of somebody's work uh, is based on their popularity before death or even after death. I don't really believe that uh, history actually does always discover the best uh, artists. I'm sort of living with the fact that I, uh, I have not uh, been uh, recognized, and, uh, and I may never be. And uh, this is only by the standards of the little boy that I once was. Uh -huh. I've actually had a great deal of encouragement, and, and if any young playwrights are listening to this, they might have heard of me and feel disgusted that I would call myself unrecognized. It's only by my old 10-year-old's standards that, I, that I'm not recognized. Well, I have to confess that um, in reading your, your, your plays and essays, I, I sometimes have the feeling that if there is a future and people are some, you know, combing through the uh, whatever's left, that they'll come across these texts and, and think, wait, this guy really really saw what was going on and 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 uh, and and talked about it in in beautiful and illuminating ways um, and I, I have to tell you the first time that I, I remember um, encountering you in in the flesh was uh, over 30 years ago and I was on a train I had just dropped out of college but I was going back up on a train to uh, uh, one of my close friends was directing a production of your um, brilliant play Aunt Anne and Lemon and uh, I was going up there just to see that and I looked around the train and I happened to see you uh, a few rows behind me and I thought what are the odds I said but this I can't I can't let this go and so I came up very hesitantly and I said uh, Mr. Sean I, I, I'm so sorry to bother you but this is so bizarre because I'm on my way to see uh, a production of your play uh, at, you know at this college and you were on your way to Boston to uh to perform the fever at that time, and uh, which was for people who don't know, is a essential monologue that you were performing not in theaters but um, in people's living rooms and uh, 
small spaces. And and you you were so um, uh, tickled by the fact that I was going to see your play that I, you almost got off the train with me before <laughs> we got to Boston. And I really thought that I was about to uh, bring you to uh, the production and blow all my friends' minds. Um, and I, I swear, I thought you were that close to getting off the train, and but you had to get ready for, I think, your, your, your reading that the next day. Um, but not only was I a big f- your writings had already uh, had a, a big effect on me, but then um, I think the next year or two, uh, uh, I, I finagled my way into uh, seeing you do Vanya on 42nd Street. And uh, it was the first time that I'd seen Chekhov performed in a way that I understood why people love Chekhov. It was this production that you did with Andre Gregory. How did that relationship come to be? Well, for, for the first several years that I wrote plays, I really uh, could not really to be honest, get a positive response from uh, most of my friends. And uh, I don't think uh, my parents understood my plays, my early plays. I had really uh, two fans, both of whom worked for my father. So you could say, hmm, but there were hundreds of people who worked for him and uh, only two (laughs) seemed to be my fans. One was... uh, uh, Penelope Gilead, and the other was Renata Adler. And Renata uh, knew... Uh, the writer of Speedboat. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Renata knew Andre Gregory and kept urging me to go and see his production of Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Rather like the character Sheldon in Young Sheldon, I, I had a lot of taboos and fears. I was afraid that if I saw that type of play, it would unduly influence me and perhaps destroy me because I'd been told that it was uh, not a literary kind of theater, but a very physical type of theater. And I was afraid of it, and I avoided seeing it. Finally, I did see it, and I did it for, well, it was, it was, it couldn't have been more literary, but it also involved circus tumbling and unbelievable physical feats on the part of the actors, but it was a beautiful and profound interpretation of Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, and I totally freaked out. I'd never seen it. I mean, I just adored it to an extent that, uh, well, I saw it 35 times, I think. Uh, <laughs> but but I think the second or third time that I saw the play, I brought along with me my envelope full of plays that I'd written, which had been rejected by every professional theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd sent them to the Public Theater in New York, to the National Theater in England, many theaters, and I'd sent them to my friends. I, I carried these plays around with me, and uh, I gave the envelope to Andre, and uh, he called and uh, said he loved my plays. Then, you know, that began a professional relationship that that uh, has continued for the rest of my life, and it's made it possible for me to uh, do incredible things uh, in theater that uh, I think uh, any playwright would envy uh, to work on a play for five years uh, until it reached a kind of state of, certain kind of perfection uh and to and then it turned out 
that uh, because of Andre, I was able to even expand my abilities as, as an actor and uh, to perform roles that nobody would have dreamed of giving me. Uh, this one man's peculiar enthusiasm for me uh, made really my professional life possible. It was quite extraordinary. Did go, so in the 70s when you were writing plays, uh, my point of view is that your plays rather sneakily confront our, our, our complacency towards and complicity in uh, oppression and injustice in the world. Um, but they never come off as, as preachy or scolding because it always seems to stem from your personal struggles of just how to be a person in the world. Do you have any thoughts on, on why your plays make people feel uncomfortable or, or, or threatened? Or, I mean, is, is it ever an aim of yours to afflict the comfortable in a way? I've always associated uh, writing with upsetting myself. I mean, I, I don't know why, but uh, I suppose there are some people who can't feel anything unless they are, uh, you know, flogged. <laughs> uh, and maybe I'm something like that as a writer. I, I need, when I read a page of my own writing, if it doesn't upset me a little bit, it's too bland uh -huh. for my taste. Well, I don't really know if people in the audience are upset. I mean, to be totally frank, nobody out there is reading my plays anyway or putting them on, so I'll just say this. I think a lot of people just say, I was bored, uh, you know. People just don't seem to like those plays that I've written. Uh, some people do, so that's mysterious. Whether they're actually upset, I... I have no idea. I mean, in other words, of course, it'd be flattering if I said, well, this play is a critique of privileged people, and so when people who are privileged see the play, they get upset. That would be very self-flattering of me to say. I mean, but I've never met anybody who's come up to me after one of my plays and said, well, I am privileged, and you've criticized people like me, and so I'm upset. But growing up and seeing plays as a teenager in New York, were your parents taking you to these? Or uh, Well, my father was not a tremendous fan of straight plays. He loved uh, the old musicals and even wrote one. Uh, I think my mother enjoyed plays, but I, I think I was way out ahead of them in, in my love of plays. You know, I did see some absolutely amazing things when I was a kid, you know, starting with Gene Arthur in Peter Pan, mm. a sort of, um, well, a sexually perverse um, performance that, uh, well, to use my mother's word, not in this context necessarily, it overstimulated me. I mean, <laughs> I was... Uh, uh, well, I don't know if I've gotten over that show yet. I, I, and then, I mean, several, I mean, I also saw with uh, Edith Oliver. I saw the visit with the Lunts. Yes. Um, which was actually directed, believe it or not, by Peter Brook, and it was so upsetting that uh, I haven't gotten over that either. I'm upset when I even get anywhere near thinking of that. So the seeds of upsetting theater were, were, were sowed early on. 
They were. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I saw Long Day's Journey in Tonight when yes. I was uh, 13, and I saw The Iceman Cometh before that when I was 12. So, yeah, upsetting theater, which to be, you know, to put it in a less silly way, theater that that told the truth about uh, things that were not normally discussed on the surface. Uh, you know, it excited me from an early age. And then when you, I know you, you went to college, and I know you went to India for a while after college to teach. How did that experience affect your, your worldview and your... When I was in college and, and a couple of years of high school, I had become a sort of, uh, let's say, afraid of uh, the romantic and artistic, uh, let's say, the 19th century side of life, and opposed to it, really. Mm. I, uh, but I was a very romantic uh, boy, let's say, between 12, 13, 14, and 15, and loved art, music, uh, drama, obviously, all these things. And then I turned against them quite violently. Was there something that, that you can point to that had that, or was it just the... It was a psychological change. I could go into my biography. Uh, if, you know, if we do a an eight-part series. <laughs> uh, but uh, I re basically thought that Human happiness was not for me after the age of, you know, when I was 16 and sort of changed. And I thought I would devote my life to others, which uh, maybe I should have. But I, at the time, I thought I certainly would. And uh, I was interested in politics and uh, economics and uh, history. I was very sympathetic to the poor starving people around the world. And going to India, I loved India, and I was so happy there. And I liked it so much more than my own country. And I felt the people there, although many of them were too poor and ill to be happy, I did feel that an awful lot of people that I met were, uh, you know, they were doing better than the people that I'd known as Americans including everyone that I'd ever met. And I, I thought, okay, there are other problems in the world. It's not just economic. I would be justified if I wanted to be a writer, which I secretly do, because uh, writers think through things and they, they, they can help possibly change culture and human psychology, they could help people in the more spiritual realm. Uh, and uh, I don't know, that was a rationalization, you might say. Someone might say that. But is that what's partly led you back into the possibility of It of totally did. Yeah. yeah, it totally yeah. did. It gave me permission. I gave myself permission to be a writer. I thought, I, it's not indulgent to be a writer. Uh... It's great, you know, if, to be a civil servant or whatever I had hoped to be, but it's not totally self-indulgent to be uh, a writer, mm -hmm. I thought. And by extension, you know, to be in artistic fields of any 
kinds. And I, I do still feel that uh, if Donald Trump had been absolutely steeped in in 17th century poetry all of his life, he, he wouldn't be uh, what he is today. He would be a better human being. I go back and forth, uh, you know, between thinking maybe I should have been a civil servant. Unfortunately, I've learned more about myself. I realize I would have been fired, probably. Uh, from, <laughs> Why? Well, that that I I uh, I don't know my my the uh, diplomatic cables that I would have sent uh, might have been no more popular than my plays <laughs> uh, for different reasons. You know, I I don't know if I. You know, I recently saw these wonderful American diplomats who were being interviewed in the impeachment hearings, mm -hmm. and I, I sort of thought, well, could I have been like one of them? Well, probably not. I certainly, I, I would have been fired, of course, by, I mean, I wouldn't have worked for the American government past a certain point. I would have, sure. I would have decided, wait a minute, this is, this is wrong, and, and, and I and my dream had been to work for the UN, but I, I gosh, I could have been fired there too. So throughout the seventies, you were writing fairly regularly, and then what was your first entree into the world of of film acting? The very first thing I was in was in Richard Foreman's Strong Medicine, an avant-garde uh, film. Ah. Uh, and then very shortly after that, I did my first. Um, well, you could say paying job uh, with uh, Woody, Woody Allen's uh, Manhattan. Yeah, that changed my life uh, because uh, it was quite a popular film. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a part that uh, was pretty noticeable as uh, the other characters were talking about me. Right throughout the film, and, and then I finally appeared. So I got offered other things. Yeah, in quick succession, you, you, Manhattan, uh, Starting Over, a wonderful Alan Bakula film, Atlantic City, and then a movie that was a, had a big impact on me when I was a kid called Simon with Alan Arkin. And I couldn't help but notice that, that after that point, your, your plays became much less frequent in terms of when you wrote them. And, it, of course, there must have been a, a, a struggle between... Uh, the time to write and uh, this new burgeoning career, did you was that did it feel were you aware of that struggle uh, in yourself just in terms of your time and and your energies? Uh, no, because actually, you know, I I saw it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, to to live, uh, and I spent very little time on uh, being an actor, and I made enough money to to support my life as a writer and my plays became more ambitious uh, and I spent longer uh, writing them. They were, you know, they, the, the plays themselves were longer and more substantial. Hmm. If, if making money wasn't an issue, uh, would, would you, do you think you would just hunker down and write more or yeah, I mean, if I if I had been independently wealthy, which, by the way, most people who know me think I am, either because of my distasteful manner, which I'm not aware of, but but uh, people seem to think I'm 
wealthy, uh, and they assumed that my father must have made a great salary and left me a lot of money. Uh, that didn't actually happen. But uh, if I'd been independently wealthy, I suppose I, I would not have been an actor, but then I would have missed some great experiences, and including acting with you in Hurley Burley of David Rabe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I'm doing right now, uh, you know, young Sheldon is unbelievably enjoyable for me. And I think if I'd just been a writer, I probably would be, I suppose some people would think I'm a pompous ass right now, but I would have been really pompous <laughs> if I had just been sitting behind a desk uh, for my whole life. It's a very liberating thing to act. Uh, so yes, probably if, if, if I had been independently wealthy, I wouldn't have gone into it or I would have done a couple of things just for fun. Uh, but, uh, it's been a joyful thing for me. So is there anything you would say to the 10 or 11 year old self when you first started, uh, dipping your your, your toes into... To, didn't you write your first play at age 10? Am I, am I correct in that? I did write a play then, yes, indeed, yes. Well, you have to treat a 10-year-old with a certain delicacy. I never really identified with being a kid and didn't particularly know what people were talking about when they saw me as a kid. I mean, I did have the opportunity to know uh, Pinter. I think it was pretty helpful for him to be uh, so deeply admired by absolutely everybody. I think that he knew, he had a lot of confidence that uh, he had spent his life in the right way. I think it really helps to have other people approve of you so that you, you know, it gives you confidence to say, yes, I've spent my life in the right way. Today, I'm thinking about my 10-year-old self. Well, how bright was I really? Was I in what, you know, how smart was I? I don't just mean when I was 10. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't feel I know. I think, and how did I have talent as a writer? It's really hard for me to know. Certainly, if, if I were to know that I really had no talent and that my writing was just sort of a pathetic attempt by someone with a, you know, very uh, distinguished father to, to live up to some kind of an ideal of being a writer, then I think I would say uh, to the small Wally, well, wow, don't don't try to do that. Uh, you know, you really could be. You're not that bright, and you have no talent. You might be able to really contribute to the world and help others by becoming a civil servant. Even if you're fired, you could certainly write useful uh, but modest books that would be beneficial to society in some regard. Uh, you know, or you could, you know, 
work for a nonprofit in which it would be tailored to you so that you would not be fired. Whereas if I were confident, you were quite smart. And, you know, uh, you, you did have talent. I think it's a great thing to be a writer. Wonderful. Uh, and if I, if I were confident, as I used to be, that, uh, you know, I, I actually, that my plays were valuable, then I would say to the kid, you know, just go for it. Uh, follow that uh, track that seems to be laid out for you. I mean, you've written a play. You're, you know, you enjoyed that, and you, 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 for a ten-year-old, you, you did well, and uh, you know, uh, stick with it. I have one very important last question. Do you have a, a favorite body of water? <laughs> uh, a favorite body of water? Yeah, well, we're lucky to have any water, I suppose, these days. I haven't really had time to compare and contrast <laughs> these different bodies of water. Well, there's that old saying, you know, comparisons are odious. So really, we can just say all of it. All of it. All of it. <laughs> Thank you, Wally. Thank you for being here. All right. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner and co-produced by Josh Hamilton with sound engineering by Josh Broom, Evan Joseph, and John Berman. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs and associate producer Christiana Lombardo. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. Thanks for listening. And please don't forget to give us a rating or a review and tell a friend about us or share a favorite episode. See you in a couple weeks.